All right, because three is a crowd. I'm here today once again, as always, in the blockhouse. Winter is upon us with Kelly. How's it going, Kelly? Um, it feels very springy. Springy. Yes, it's cold today. in here. Yeah, well, it's chilly in here, but it's like the sun. It didn't rain yesterday, really, at all, or today yet. So this weather forecast is coming to you from the past. Hopefully, <laughs> your future looks a lot like our present. Sunny. I put my plant in the window. Oh yeah, still alive. I'm proud of you. I know. Jesus, one thing I've kept alive in my entire life. Hardly keeping myself alive. <laughs> Kelly, we're not here to talk about life and death. I we're mean... here to talk about <laughs> Bob Dylan. This okay. is a Bob Dylan podcast. We take a random song, or in this case, an album. What? <gasps> and we listen to it for a week or two, and then we get together and we talk about it. It's pretty much it. I've been listening to Bob Dylan for most of my life. Kelly has heard roughly the same number of songs as the emergency telephone number for ambulances in parts of India. And this week... Oh, we're over 100. We Is listen, this 101? Damn it. We listened to... <laughs> 102. We just okay. did one. <laughs> and this week, we listened to 1970s, universally panned, but why? Mm-hmm. Self-portrait. Alberta, let your hair hang low. All right, Kelly, so we spent the entire week listening to, well, we spent two weeks, really, listening to Self-Portrait by Bob Dylan. Now, this is known, and we'll talk about some of the worst albums of all time and stuff. This is considered that. I don't know if that's gone through any sort of revising, maybe with the Bootleg series coming out in 2013. Maybe that's kind of fixed it a little bit. Uh, I think people are more forgiving just because Bob Dylan kind of kept going. Mm. Uh, This wasn't like the universal decline that just kept declining or or anything like that. But I just want to know what you think. So. We have heard two songs from this, and obviously he threw on some fucking uh, Isle of Wight stuff, which we covered last summer. So you knew some of these songs. Yeah, you okay. knew some I was of the like, twang and some of the stuff. Did I hear these before? Oh, yeah. And I, the Isle of, I was like, this rings many bells, mm-hmm. but uh, couldn't confirm. Yeah, there, there's no way to know. <laughs> there's no way to know. There's no way to go back and listen. Uh, I, I don't hate it. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk all about what makes something good and bad, but yeah, just to throw it out there, I, yeah, I don't hate it. Yeah. Would I go back and listen to it again? Maybe. Maybe some songs from mm, it. Yeah, me too. The whole thing in one go? No. There are some definite <laughs> skippable tracks. It's too long. Mm-hmm. But it's truly a fun like piece of art. Honestly, when you when you just when you know the context of it and Bob Dylan's sort of contempt for what he was well, not contempt for what he was doing, because I don't think that that's true. I don't think he hated these songs. He didn't make them bad or anything. It's more of a contempt for his audience and what their expectations were. And they did not want this for sure. And he gave them this. I mean, famously, this is the this is the um, Grail Marcus writing for Rolling Stone. What is this shit? That's how his review starts. And who knew 40 years later he'd be writing the liner notes for, you know, uh, the Bullock Series Volume 10, another self-portrait. I mean, it, it comes around, you know. And he was right about some things in there, which was that if he doesn't start making better music, he's going to be codified as a 60s star that's it he'll just be remembered for the 60s he won't be remembered as a 
a world revolutionary musician, you know? And so he was right about that. Like if, if things had stayed the same, I mean, cause it was kind of like a little downhill. And even though he's still making great music, the eighties really showed that like people didn't care. They just wanted a 60 stuff. And I think today most people would gravitate toward that over, over almost anything. Yeah. Except maybe his new, new stuff. I mean, just cause it's new and it's there, but, and it's not bad. You know, and when did this come out? This came out in 1970. Okay. So this so, is like before, so this is uh, Nashville Skyline would have come out mm. literally a couple of minutes before. A couple of minutes. <laughs> I mean, really, the, yeah. his, he ended sessions for Nashville Skyline on April 20th, and he went into the studio for self, his first self-portrait on April 24th. So. Well, I can't say I'm surprised considering how much Muppet shows up on this album. There's a couple of them, yeah. And they're out of uh, out of any sequence, any order, which I also <laughs> love. Love it. Absolutely love it. Those are some of the best, the best moments. I love it. Especially voice. because the sh- shock of it all, how jarring it is. Oh, I've forgotten more. <laughs> he sounds like an, like an old, um, like he's from the 20s or something, just without the crackles and pops. I it's like it. if you took all the, the like sound out of the Wookiee voice, that's what it would be. Mm. That is what they sounded like in the 1920s, though. That is what all of those oh, songs yeah. kind of mean, tend yeah, to sound like, yeah. just without the crackles, you know, mm-hmm. so. Put some crackles on that. You're like, oh, but they're yeah. a little more like. I know with the. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's close though. It really is close. You could definitely sequence, get that, just pitch it up a little. So if somebody were in this it. in the studio is like, Bob, I've got a great idea, and just went up and just plugged his nose. <laughs> okay, go. Or put one of those like washer things on his nose. Like a little clothespin. Be even better. Yeah, yeah. that would be incredible. Uh, no, I mean, there's really not a whole lot of context to say. Uh, I don't really want to go that deep on this in particular, like. All the musicians and everything like that, because there's tons of them. I mean, so many musicians. Oh, sure. So this was recorded over the course of a whole year. The final overdubs didn't end until April 3rd, 1970. It began April 24, 1969, final overdubs, 1970 in April. So almost one full year of putting this together from Nashville to L.A. to New York, all over the country, uh, to try to get this thing to, to be a thing. What was it even? I mean, that's a whole nother question, you know? Um, so we're not going to go through all of the musicians, but it is impressive. And there's, l- you know, lots of faces that, you know, like Al Cooper. And then, of course, Levon Helm and International Treasure Garth Hudson, all the entire band. You know, Danko's there. Manuel's there. Um, Robbie Robertson's there. Ron Cornelius, David Bromberg. Um, and so we'll talk about them more when we get to the songs in particular. So a lot of these songs are going to show up again in our regular everyday lives we've already had a couple Mm -hmm. days of 49 woogie boogie Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about here in in a minute wow you just just had to if you're not playing i forgot more than you'll ever know then what am i playing mcr is it e minor e minor sorry yes okay that's great that takes some uh mad talent okay let's let's talk about it I've always uh, hated this album because I was told to hate this album. 
That will color your perception. Absolutely. So I think you come into this with as much as you know, as we've said, 102 episodes uh, and a little bit more of Bob Dylan, uh, a couple albums and all that kind of stuff. I came into this hating it. Like, I just didn't want to be a part of it. Because even in my conception, I'm like, oh, the bootleg series is better because it's like the 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 stuff that Bob chose not to do. Because I know that he did this because he wanted to spite his fans. So I was like, oh, there's probably good stuff on there. Ignoring that self-portrait has good stuff on it. Because I in my head, it's like, this is trash and this over here is good. And I think there's some choices over here for like, you know, that will we talked about new morning last week, new morning is very much wrapped up with, uh, another, oh, I'm sorry, with self portrait. Cause it was recorded right around the same time on top of each other. Cause again, very important to remember. These are just practice songs. These, these are what the band warmed up to, to then play new morning, sign on the window, this record. Is like their downtime. This is their downtime. Yeah. Exactly. So you can subjectively not hate this, but I thought it was objectively terrible. And, um, I think we talked about it last week of just trying to like break out of that mindset of like, just to have a more open mind about stuff. Even if you don't like it, you know, try to think about it on its merits at the very least uh, and what someone's doing or not doing. And don't call it the worst thing ever because it just isn't the worst thing ever. There is definitely worse things ever. Bob Dylan on self-portrait, there's a lot of stuff about self-portrait. What do you mean? Like people want to know, why did you do oh. this? And okay. Bob Dylan's been fairly open about it. Um, Robert Shelton, who wrote the first big biography on Dylan, asked him, like, why did you record Blue Moon? And Bob Dylan was pretty stung by it. He was like, if, if, if I was a middle-of-the-road artist or if Elvis or the Everly Brothers, who I think popularized it, um, did this, you would not be asking that question. And I think Dylan has a good point on all of that. You wouldn't ask Elvis this question. You wouldn't ask all these other people this question. Why do you hold me to this higher regard? Why can't I fucking record this? And it's all an antecedent to triplicate, right? He does all of those fucking traditional songs. Yeah, but it's a great point of like, you're. Why are you? It is kind of a crazy question to be like, yo, why'd you record this fucking song? You heard me saying a prayer for someone I really could care for. Who are you? Well, I mean, the, the absolute best version of the song wouldn't be recorded till you know, almost 40, 30 years later. Oh. Uh, in the movie Babe, uh, <laughs> the three field mice sing it together, and it's uh, incredible. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> I do want to hear it. Poor man, the song is standing alert, without a clue in my eyes. Holy shit, how do you do that with your voice? <laughs> That's really horrific. So it was really unnecessary for Bob to do this. <laughs> Later on in the 1980s, especially when he was sort of going downhill, Rolling Stone, Kurt Lo- you remember Kurt Loder yeah. from MTV oh, News? Oh, he worked uh, he was Rolling, Rolling Stone. Stone. He asked in 1984 about this. Now, there's a really long quote, so I don't want to read the whole quote here on the episode, but essentially it boils down to Woodstock was happening. I got into my motorcycle accident. I wanted to try to do different things. Woodstock was happening down the street and I didn't want to do that because people at that point had already been coming up to my house, knocking on my door, trying to get my attention. And I just wanted people to leave me alone. Uh, They saw me as a voice of a generation. They saw me as a leader. He says, uh, um, People need a leader. People need a leader more than a leader needs people, really. I mean, anybody can step up as a leader if he's got the people uh, there that want one. If he's got the people there that want one. I didn't want that, though. 
And then with Woodstock, he said he didn't want to be a part of all of that. He said the Woodstock Festival, um, which is the sum, quote, the sum total of all this bullshit, which is the music that was happening, the way people were treating him and people around him. Uh, He decided to dip out. We talked a little about that when he went to Isle of Wight instead of Woodstock, which putting those Isle of Wight recordings on self-portrait is almost another FU to the fucking, uh, you know, the people who are listening to you and went to Woodstock and wanted you to be at Woodstock. Uh, so then they moved out of Woodstock where they lived and they went back to um, New York City. And he was like, that was a terrible decision because New York City was basically Woodstock in the city. Uh, everybody kept coming at me still. Uh, he, he said in Chronicles, they were, quote, rogue radicals looking for the prince of protest. They would be just outside of his house at any given day. And and then to pick up on the quote, he said, quote, well, fuck it. I wish uh, these people would just forget about me. I want to do something they can't possibly like, that they can't possibly relate to. They'll see it and they'll listen and they'll say, well, let's go to on to the next person. He just ain't saying it no more. He ain't giving us what we want. You know, they'll go on to somebody else. But the whole thing backfired because the album went out there and the people said, this ain't what we want. And they got more resentful. And then I did a portrait for the cover. I mean, there is no title for that album. I knew somebody who had paints and a square canvas, and I did a cover in about five minutes. And I said, well, I guess I'll call this self-portrait. Why the double album? I think I told you this quote. He said, quote, well, it wouldn't have held up. It's just a single album. Then it really would have been bad, you know? I mean, if you got to put a lot of crap on it, you might as well load it up. And like I said, essential to understand that it's just practices and everything. Uh, so in 1985, again, this is all right around the same time. Uh, we've talked about Biograph, the first box set, you know, famous for sort of the first retrospective of, a, of an artist's career. A lot of um, B-side stuff, but a lot of like the hit songs. Um, Cameron Crowe did a rare interview with Dylan at the time and sort of talked about all of these songs. And he talked, because there's a few self-portrait songs on there, especially Quinn the Eskimo Man. Um, and he talks about Biograph. Or he talks about self-portrait in Biograph uh, and says, quote, self-portrait was a bunch of tracks that we'd done all the time that I'd go to Nashville. We did that studio. We did that stuff to get a studio sound. To open up, we'd do two or three songs just to get things right, and then we'd go on and do what we were going to do. And then there were a lot of songs that were just on the shelf. But I was being bootlegged at the time, and a lot of the stuff that and a lot of stuff that was worse was appearing on bootlegging records. So I just figured that I put all the stuff together and put it out my own bootleg record, so to speak. You know, it's actually if it would have been a bootleg record, people probably would have sneaked around to buy it and played it for each other secretly. Also, I wasn't going to be nobody's puppet, and I figured this record would put an end to that. I was just fed up with all the who people thought I was nonsense. So he made something that was intentionally bad to give himself some distance from everybody being on top of him all the time. Yeah. And then followed it with New Morning. Followed it up in the, yeah, New Morning chronologically. Yeah. Uh, Which also, I feel like people, like, I don't know, but what's what's the one before this? Nashville Skylines? Nashville Skylines before. If people are still wanting him to be like the voice of a generation, do you think New Morning fits that brief either? No, I don't. I don't. I think that even John Wesley Harding and them had sort of, it was already kind of going yeah. down. But I think what he was doing appealed to people at the time, even like with, with what he was doing with the band in, in Big Pink. Like people didn't have that music, but they knew about it. They knew it was happening. Like, oh, can you believe this? But that style of music was getting popular at the what time. What style of music? The, the Roots Rock. Oh, sure. CCR. Like yeah. that stuff right at 68, 69. And, and the band just came out of nowhere to be one of the biggest 
bands in the world. I mean, obviously the Bob Dylan connection helped, but they're also incredibly talented. Mm -hmm. But that type of music was like, we want that music. So Bob was, I think, able to kind of ride that wave, like still, even though he wasn't producing, you know, Blonde on Blonde Part 2. Like Blonde on Blonde was the last of that, that Wild Mercury sound. Like after that, it was it was more just like acoustic regular music like nothing too crazy um but i think it was still with the time but i think that when 1970 came around i mean new morning's pretty dope but i think that music then turbocharged away from dylan and he was left kind of he's still a star he's still a star for sure but you know once you get into metal and and punk and you know hard rock and stuff and that sort of sweeps bob dylan's not gonna not really gonna be competitive again until you know the 90s so and that's kind of I think where where that's at I bless the day I found you I want my arms around you so I beg you let it be me So Bob Dylan's not the first to do a bad album, quote unquote, a bad album. But I think it bears uh, looking into. Is it really as bad as we think it is? Well, let's establish what makes a bad album. What is makes a bad album? Yeah. Because all art is subjective and that's like obvious, right? Everybody should know that. Like there are things in life that are functional. Like I don't know that I like toilets, but we definitely need toilets, right? It has intrinsic value. Right. But any media for consumption, I don't need to listen to this. I don't need to do that thing. And therefore it's whether or not I like it. Right. right? That's the only value it has. So it's always going to be subjective because everyone is different and everybody likes different things. Now, I think there's a little bit of objectivity in what is bad when it comes to uh, ability, like technical ability to play an instrument. Even that, obviously, there's been, like, punk rock as an idea, uh-huh. industrial music as an idea. Like, there's diverging upon that. Like, let's break the rules just to break them. Fucking jazz. Thank you, terrible. Hot jazz and stuff. And what are the guess? Whatever. Okay? But I, I would think that, that setting a baseline, playing your instruments poorly, because you, you're you not quite good enough. Yeah. I mean, that's... I know. You know what it's I mean? It's a slippery slope. But I think that's the only level you can go to. If we're going to objective, it's that like you yeah. you fundamentally don't understand like rhythm, like yeah. you know, like time signatures, or like you don't understand song. Like you have no grasp of music theory whatsoever, or and you just can't play an instrument correctly or yeah. or good enough. Again, like this, take all this with a grain of salt. But that I'm tra- if it, we're trying to find an objective line, I think that would be the only one you can tell. Well, I think yeah. a critic would say like lay all that out yeah. and do exactly what you're saying, which is like. This can still be good and 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 valid, and maybe even more important than the people who can play well. Mm-hmm. But here, here I will lay out for you the reasons because I do have an ear for musicianship right. and songwriting and songcraft. I'll tell you why this is maybe not so good. But yeah, to, to sort of denigrate the whole thing, it seems wild to me. You have to have good reasons for that. Yeah, exactly. And I would say, what do I think? Like, if, if bad albums that albums that I don't enjoy are going to be from bands that I really loved that then produced something that I did not like. I would say that is a bad album from a subjective standpoint just because I did not like it. And that's right. all we're basing it on is whether or not you like it. So it's like, but I just don't care. As I get older, I just care less and less so much. It's like when I was 18 and Slipknot put out their fourth album and it was the like, I, I was so affronted and appalled that I like could not listen right. to it and like ceased listening to the band for the betterment of the world. Uh, that 
was that even bad? Is it? I know. Some people would say it's better. They put like way more guitar solos on it. And if we're going from the objective standpoint of can they play their instruments? Yeah. Oh, they yeah, yeah. proved it harder on that album well, than any other one. I think everybody has their line. I think my line is... Is this a cash grab? That's my line. Okay. Is this was this piece of music created to just cash to make in? some money? Yeah. So or to fulfill a contract, which again, making money. Well, sure. Yeah. Well, that but that that that's tough because that does require a little bit of 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 more knowledge, I guess. Oh, but like sure. Kevin yeah. Federline showing up to produce a record. I know that that's a cash grab. Strictly on the back of dating Britney Spears. Like, yeah, there is literally no reason why you're here. And so I know that this is going to be bad. Not only just musically, songwriting-wise, you're going to be playing other people's music anyway. So even if the songs are fine, like, you didn't do one, I know that. But it's like, why was this made? I think so intent. why intent okay. is a great... So we've got, like, technical ability... Which can be up there, yeah. Be, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's that important. But, but even like punk bands and stuff know how to play. Like you just know how to play music. You know well, that's what I'm saying. Chords and stuff. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're not gonna get into it if you don't know. Because I do think there's a, there is definitely a difference. Being somebody who's played in bands that do not know how to play music, there's a difference between a band who does not know at all even how to play their instruments versus a band who doesn't know music theory and chords. Oh and sure, like that kind of stuff. There is a difference, and I've been on the the broke ass side of that line and uh listening back to that stuff it's like it can be listenable but it's not enjoyable it's only fun as a historical document you know so that's the difference that's the transcendence between like a historical document of a moment of a movement of a town of a city or whatever and something that transcends into you know great music that all people can love your professional bands can play up to six sometimes seven completely different chords that's just like fruity jazz bands this isn't that Self-portrait, I don't think, transcends any well, of those levels, but, that's why but Bob Dylan to, like, does, we're, right? We're older, we're more open-minded, and just to yeah. reject something on the face of it, really, it's, I think it's important to try to, to find value in stuff, especially anything you're devoting your time to, because like time, as fucking broke-ass Americans, as we all, most of us are suffering, uh, you only have your time. It's really all you can invest into something a lot of the time. Yeah. So it's like, And you have the internet, which I think... You didn't have that before, so you might have bought this album, and maybe you thought because you plopped down twenty bucks and you listened to this, and it wasn't what you thought. You can say, "What is this shit?" and maybe be more valid in your anger because, because you had to pay you had thirty bucks. For but it, there's no reason why you can't go online and be like, "Who is this person?" You know, twenty years from now, you're like, "Who is Chris Brown?" And you're like, "Oh God, no! I don't want to." <laughs> like you're just like, "I don't want to deal with this because I don't." I don't want to, yeah, spend my time focused on somebody that I find abhorrent. And really, it's it's all middling anyway. So what's the point? So another um, criterion I think that that's valid, uh, be, talking about albums specifically, what makes a good or bad one, the concept of albums having a collection of like 10-ish songs, yeah. they should fit together because yeah. I'm of the mind that albums are like capturing a moment. Like yeah. it usually takes a band, I don't know, anywhere from a, three days to a year to record. Well, it takes a lifetime to write your first album. <laughs> whatever that is true <laughs> but i hate that you said that yeah. <laughs> uh so i i think that it's it should have a similar flavor kind of throughout there should yeah. be like whether it's a, a like obvious verbal spoken theme or if it's just like melodic theme or, or you, like you recorded it in together. the same studio same musicians right. everybody's or even like together. the intentional idea of sequencing it so that it, you know mm -hmm. maybe these songs are a little disparate but the way that i made the album they mm -hmm. fit together in the end we have a spoken word part that 
carries on through or sure. what, yeah, yeah whatever, whatever yeah. sort of time, like um, to Pimp a Butterfly, you know, you've got Kendrick, you know, uh, reading out a poem. Mm-hmm. The poem starts in spurts, you know, you get about two lines here yep. and then the next song, four That's lines, cool. and then That's it just keeps album. going through. Yeah. yeah, it's those little things or just having the dissonant tracks you know, fade into the next one or having like the radio for that Sturgill Simpson one where you just like mm. interrupt the end of a song to turn the radio station and you're on another track. Like, yeah, just thinking about it as a, as a piece, a whole yeah. piece. I think that's important. Kind and of like a director. You're more like of a director. It's rewarding you yeah. for, oh, for yeah. getting to the end. It's rewarding you for taking the time to actually stop and listen. Like I said, if all we have is our time, mm-hmm. then thank you for thinking about me, the listener, as this piece of music is, is coming to me. Right. So that's where this album yes. to bring it all back to self-portrait bring it all back home fails miserably oh, like miserably. on the face of just that criteria this album is a failure yeah because there is no intentional sequencing there is no common theme there is nothing to grasp onto no and that's why it's not good yeah i think most most artists and most records i think still are like this they're just a collection of songs which i think is fine it's okay but um, but, but they don't sound but, this disparate. I don't know. I've listened. Oh a lot yeah, of albums. no. The, this thing is like fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> so all right. So I mean, let's just go through it then. Sure. I just want to hear your take on all of them. So most of these we're going to cover uh, at length. Some of them we're not. All the tired horses being one of them. Wigwam being another. So we'll talk about them. And uh, there's a couple with like multiples. Number one, number two. So we'll just kind of like throw them all together. So let's just start with number one. All the tired horses. What a wild introduction to this weird fucking album. And it is weird. At the end of the day, it is a weird album. So this might be my favorite song on the album. Wild. That's uh, a take. That's a wild take. It's ah, the strings. I don't know. It just felt like not a Bob Dylan song. I mean, him not being on the track is like, uh-huh. I mean, he might be playing the four acoustic chords or whatever, yeah. but well, the, and the strings are such a thing on uh, another side. I just think it's so beautiful. And like, I don't know. It's like evocative. It, mm-hmm. Okay. The lyrics suck because there's only two lines and it's repeated forever. And like, we could probably just, I don't hate the backup singers on this one because they're not the backup singers. They're the only singers yeah. and it's not the worst. Maybe if they were saying something more or not just repeating the same line over and over again, it, if the vocals were used differently, this would be just perfect. This would be a perfect like little song. Is it a good Bob Dylan song? That I cannot speak to. Well, you to. know what it is? It's an unfinished song. It's a song where he had the chorus ready to go. And he's like, oh, I'm never coming back to this. Just put it on. I just, I don't know, man. There's something about it. It's like, it really transcends the time it's written in. Because if you take out, again, if you take, barring the uh, backup singers, yeah. I think that this could, that fucking string line, you could put that in a pop song today. Yeah, totally. And in fact, there's like a, can you put the last like uh, 10 seconds of the song on? Yeah. I do know what you're talking about. There's like yeah. a plinking uh, piano tr- uh, line that comes in, a little melody that's such a throwaway because there, you can tell that this is an experiment and this isn't mm-hmm. a finished song because the the um, the string section changes a little bit throughout it. It just kind of dips in and, and leaves. A lot of the elements, like the organ comes in and leaves. Like you don't really notice it. Overdubs. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there's this really interesting like uh, plinking piano sound that I'm like 90% sure is a Panic at the Disco. Like, Panic at the Disco, with their first album, they use that exact oh. melody. And I don't think it's like they sampled it or anything, but it's just like, 
that's how music is, right? There's yeah. only so many fucking notes in the world. So like they managed to recreate that exact Brandon line. Murray sitting here just listening to all the tired horses on repeat. I mean, I maybe, like maybe. I like it. So I like something about that makes it timeless to me. It feels anachronistic. It doesn't feel like it's a song from the seventies. Again, barring the backup yeah. singer, yeah. really dated instantly. So yes, I like this song a lot. Song is great. The, the, the overdub is excellent. I wish again, more songs on this had it. But this is not an album. We need to stop talking about it like an album. Yeah. Because I, when we were talking about it this week, just as we were listening, I was like, I wish that they had carried the the singers throughout more of it because I really like them. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, it's not an album. This yeah. is not a well, – there's no carrying like, them through. They they showed will, up for one day. You can't – this is not – this shouldn't exist. Right. This shouldn't exist. Yeah. I will say it was fucking jarring. I was not expecting this to be the first song. Like when I first oh, yeah. put it on to listen to it for the first time, I was like, what the fuck is this? This is incredible. And yeah. then it immediately went away with the next song. I was like, okay, I don't know what we're doing. Shout out to, to Martha Stewart, Albertine Robinson, June Page, Hilda Harris, and Dolores Edgen for their vocals. Cause I think they're wonderful yeah. and they only show up, I think on like two tracks and it's just really disappointing because I love it. And I just, we just came off of Christmas and I just love the singers on Christmas in the heart. And you know, I, but, and I don't like the stuff in the eighties. So I'm kind of like, I'm torn because I know it's not great, Context, but I dude. want it, uh, whatever. Uh, so Alberta, yeah, one, two, and there's an, a three on another self-portrait. Oh, okay. um, so there's a lot of these. This is a pretty standard song. Lead Belly made it popular, uh, famous in the 1930s. He's recorded multiple versions of it. This is a great song. Um, and obviously yeah. he chose it not only for, you know, not the opener, right? But it, but basically the opener, Bob Dylan song. But he also chose it for the closer, which is a weird little bit of intentionality on his part. I definitely like this version better than this second the second version. one. Yeah, because yeah, this one is just more melancholy and it feels more appropriate. Like, I don't know. I'm just like, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't listen to another self-portrait to get ready for any of this because we'll hear a lot of those when we listen to these songs. So I don't, I'm sure three has like probably strings on it or something you know there's a lot of them just have strings it's like just yeah. imagine the songs with the dubs on it like this is maybe what we wanted to do but we didn't i like i don't know i just of the stuff we've listened to well new morning nice had the flavor. dubs yeah and then it was the same era and sign on the windows it's overdubs are fucking great have that violin just makes it even more popping like that's my version of sign on the window i love that's why best. i'm excited to get desire because it seems like he's mm-hmm. like i, I kind of want like an orchestral vibe but this isn't right like you can tell he's trying it he's trying it it just doesn't feel Maybe it's not what exactly we want. And then he's like, oh, I found my fucking girl. We're going to do this. Like, I just want one violin. That's the key. It's one violin. And it's great. I mean, we've listened to a lot of Desire, but not not fully on through. Uh, I forgot more. I forgot more. Pass. Hard pass. You'll ever if Patsy Klein was singing this song, I would yeah. be a hundred percent on board. But with Muppet so, Nashville Skyline, not. So that's here. what's fun about all of this. So um, in my recommendations this week, we'll be talking about Kim Burns' country music because I just finished it and it's absolutely fantastic. And it's fun because a lot of these people and songwriters, as I was looking up these songs, I'm like, I wouldn't even even have known. But now I know. Oh, they're showing up on his stuff. Oh yeah, we'll oh, we'll, hell yeah. we'll get to it in a bit. But uh, this one this one was like a one off song written by uh, Cecil Null. Uh, out of Bristol, Virginia, which is where the Carter family is from. Um, but he's just, this was like the 1950s, so it was way after. But this was performed by the Davis sisters. It was a smash hit for them. It's a lovely song. And I um, love to hear their version. Yeah, and it was number one, it was the, the first, the only number one country song by a female duet ever in country music until the Judds. Winona, Judd, and them 30 years later. Wow. So, and they got, their hit was in the 50s. <laughs> so the first female. Damn. Yeah. Know the smile on his lips, the thrill. 
Okay, so how many songs on here did he actually write? Like, he wrote All the Wild Horses. Well, the Wild Horses, uh, Wigwam. Yes. Uh, he wrote, um, and I think Live in the Blues, I think is. Okay, I couldn't um, tell. I mean, because that feels like it's such a classic uh, blues song, but I was just curious. As we go on, I should keep in mind that these are all covers. These are all covers, yeah. Okay. And I'll go into them, and we'll talk about them more, because uh, for a few of these, it's going to be a stack of lease situation. It's going to be a deep dive into them. Maybe not this one, because this guy's like a one-off. This is like mm. his one song. I think he released one album with like, this was the album title, the album song, like this was everything. Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, but yeah, he's got that country sound. Obviously, he's got his his um, his voice, yes. but it's also just that steel. Oh yeah! You know, Anytime you bring out the lap steel, buddy. Love it, love it. Got to talk about. We'll do it briefly. The Jolly Saucy Crew goals. Um, uh, that's all I put. I was like, see episode ten, the enduring Jolly Saucy Crew. <laughs> Days of Forty Nine, one of our best episodes, one of our most most fun. Uh, we're just kicking it back then, uh, and it, this was a great song and a weird song to get at the time. Even though we came on a string of weird songs at that point, we had just done King of France. Um, and some other weird shit. It certainly wakes you up after you're falling asleep during. And it's still great. Like just solid, man. Like excellent, (laughs) like excellently done. Uh, One of the, one of the best songs on this. I mean, I have to learn Jinsot. The Jinsot Foley or whatever. Like they called me a bummer and a Jinsot too. A Jinsot too. And so many bills. It's just like iconic. So if you want to listen to an iconic episode of this podcast, Episode 10 for sure. Don't worry about it. I was dreaming about bills. Early Morning Rain. This is not an old song. That was uh, written by Gordon Lightfoot. So 1960s. Yeah. He's like a recording musician. Yeah, yeah, he's like a folk singer turned into like a just kind of a generic pop singer. But 1961, I think, something like that. So a pretty early song. I thought this one felt like a Bob Dylan song, but by mm. way of Jimmy Buffett, which he does sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty. I mean, really standard stuff. Uh, I think an interesting one that we'll definitely have to dive really deep into and I don't want to go too far into is the Little Sadie, In Search of Little Sadie. Okay, the whole yeah. connection to that. So we talked about 3220 Blues last season. Mm-hmm. This one definitely, obviously, blow my Little Sadie down. This one's more famous, way more famous than that song, oh, okay. 3220. This song is super famous. Is this like, or is this a... Robert so Johnson too? This no, this one has got a crazy history. Um Oh, kind of like a stack of leaf. Yeah, that we'll have to like cool. we'll break it down. So okay. I, I feel like we shouldn't uh get into get too it. Much away. But this one is actually weird because this one permeated my life because um Greg Grandin, the lead singer of Bad Religion, did a an acoustic album in like two thousand six or something, and he recorded Little Sadie. Hmm. And I think that might have been the first time I had ever heard that song. Uh, and he did a lot of old songs, California Cotton Fields and stuff that I are now sta- like every single artist that you think would have done that has done those those standard songs. And I was just I, when I heard it the first time, I was like, oh, that's a really good song. Wow. You're so good at writing songs. Oh, I was yeah. like, oh, the whole thing's a cover. Right. Everything's a cover. But which is great because Bad Religion, like opening that door for me, you know, some punk kid who's just out of high school, like that was my introduction to this. So I've always loved the little Sadie song. And there's so many bands have covered this. We'll get into that for sure. Uh, Let It Be Me was originally a French song uh, made popular by the Everly Brothers. Yeah. Made popular by the Everly Brothers. You don't like that. Let It Be Me. Oh, it's so beautiful. Just like the mushy lyrics Mm. with Muppet voice. Mm, It's so good. The piano is just key. I'd like to quote myself here. Fucking awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it it reminded me of um, I'll Be There by the Jackson 5. So it's like it's like an I'll be there feeling, but then with a Muppet voice and it's just, oh, mm. so bad. We're going to agree to disagree. <laughs> it's one of my favorite songs on there. Uh, Woogie Boogie. We talked about uh, jazz. We talked about scat. We talked about all kinds of stuff. 
when we had when we were uh, taken by surprise on episode 21 and we had to do this and there were no lyrics and uh, it was a moment that I was like holy shit we probably have a bunch of instrumentals on here that I don't mean to have on here <laughs> and then I got rid of Wigwam and you know I hope I'll, all the tired horses because there's what are we going to talk about I mean I, I could really go off about I, but I, I went well, off an appropriate level I guess about mm, all the tired we horses we could go off more I'll see it's probably on there honestly I probably overlooked it so uh, yeah well, you just want to hear again yeah, it's another thing to like wake you up after the abomination of oh Blood Jesus Jimmy. Christ, all right, or whatever it was. That's yeah, whatever called. it was, right? Yeah. Whatever it was, <laughs> just because he's got his Muppet voice, <laughs> you're gonna hate. You're gonna haters. Not gonna hate. true in haters context. Again, hate. if he would have stacked them, even in this album, if he would have been like, "It's Muppet time, gird your loins." I would have been on board. I feel like. But did you hear him say, "I just want to pile on crap upon crap"? <laughs> so he's not gonna be deliberate about it. He should have organized. He's not it gonna better. be nice about it. <laughs> Uh, Belle Isle, super famous song. So that's a traditional song. Um, Mark Bolin of T-Rex. Remember T-Rex? Who we saw From the on? t-shirt of... Literally Oz just listening. Yeah. Uh, Mark Bolin of T-Rex told Melody Maker in 1970, he said, quote, I just listened to Dylan's new album, in particular Belle Isle, and I feel deeply moved that such a man is making music in my time. Dylan's songs are now mainly love ballads, which again, this is like the perception that you have of him now because yes. he just did Nashville Skyline too. Uh, the writing of which is one of the most poetic art forms since the dawn of man. Belle Isle Damn. brought to my memory all the moments of tenderness I've ever felt for another human being. And that... With a superficial landscape of pop music, it's a great thing indeed. Please, all the people who write bitterly of a lost star, remember that with maturity comes change, as surely as death follows life. The guy Damn, the Mark. is 100% right. Damn, Mark. I mean, I don't know about writing about Bob Dylan this particular moment, but I mean, that's totally right. That sentiment is right, so therefore we can apply it to this. In 1972, uh, like this was way ahead of the curves. Yeah, especially talking about Bob Dylan, but just like with pop music in general, like just having that kind of like that Maturity, mindset man. is really, yeah. really smart. Just be a little open-minded and just try to connect with it just because it's something you weren't expecting doesn't mean you might not. Yeah. yeah. And knowing how superficial all of this can be. And, and But for him to hear that through it is incredible. Like to connect to that on such a level is beautiful. Therefore I remain at my service and go through all my hardship and toil. And wait for the lad that has left me All alone on the banks of Belle Isle Yeah, but I feel like this song slips into the canon really perfectly. I think this feels like a Bob Dylan song. Yeah, totally. That's why this song is so fucking weird. It's so weird. Yeah, that one works because you could just see him play, playing it with yeah. John Wesley Harding. It's perfect. Actually. Yeah. That sounds excellent. Uh, his only original song on here, again, not counting the La La La's, uh, Live in the Blues, which is fine. Hmm. Is that now that you're a uh, jazz oh. and country music expert? Whoa, whoa. I don't know. Uh, is this a stride piano? I feel like... Oh, God. It is the technically the style. I was trying to place it, and I think it's. I just know stride as being it's uh, just only a piano, but I guess you would have the style of stride. Oh right, like, yeah, do, 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 yeah. There's a specific style. I, I mean, I liked it, so it's. Uh, it does feel different. Weirdly enough, it's like, oh, this is a genuine Bob Dylan song. My only problem was that it's like kind of the, the same like mopey crooner thing that's a little going on this Muppet Voice album, and it's not as endearing without the old man growl that nashville sound like all the strings and stuff that was absolutely what was happening like that's that sound it was either the twangy bakersfield sound like that you think of as kind of like sort of country but there are drums and stuff in it or you have that sort of i have somewhat of a southern accent of a kind but then i also have like massive strings just yeah. like strings 
which is wild. They turned into crooners, essentially, um, you know, the which was popular at the time too, Frank Sinatra and stuff like that. So to bring it, uh, to take a little break in the record, we're going to go to our Isle of Wight cuts, which we're not going to spend any time on. If you want to listen to that, we did a supplemental series, uh, volume seven, where we talked about Isle of Wight in the backyard last summer. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, again, because he's throwing... <laughs> random uh live performances on this record because well anything to pad the time uh like rolling stone is on here because of course then that probably sold records just alone uh quinn the eskimo man which uh honestly i don't prefer the isle of Wight. i love his um his recorded takes of it which will we will definitely talk about that song because i love that song uh she belongs to me from bringing it all back home and uh minstrel boy which we talked about hardest of passes we're not into uh so yeah I, I listened to the whole thing i probably listened to this about six times through and i listened to it only fully once and then i deleted all the isle of whites off there and i listened to it five more times yeah uh, i think that's probably the way to go this especially might, if you're used to the isle of white stuff i don't know maybe because we had a little bit more time with it or what but i listened to this album maybe more than any other album i'm supposed to do this i saw you listen to it all the time so, yeah. yeah i i don't know oh i know we already talked about isle of white but I forgot yeah. if we had listened to those songs or not. So I just wanted to say my thought about Rolling Stone. Yes. God, imagine if this was how the song was originally recorded. <laughs> I don't believe it would have been a hit. Yeah. I and think that's, that's probably true. <laughs> that's all I got for you. Uh, I think a lot of versions you hear like a Rolling Stone, he relies purely on people's knowledge of the song sure. to be good. Sure. I just uh, finished listening to all of the band's 1971 live like last couple of song, the shows before the new year and Bob Dylan appears on two of those uh, shows. Uh, so it's like a four disker with like all four shows and uh, like Rolling Stone, they're just bad. Like they're just not good. Uh, he forgets the lyrics. He's mumbling sure. through most of them. And, but he's playing like a Rolling Stone and you know, the words we know so the, the melody. Just, it doesn't matter. Just feel, pretend you're listening to the record and then just, Exactly, happen. and that moment is is gone. And honestly, it's it's a it's a fucking miracle of life that it's preserved on a little disc and on the computer that we can listen to it forever. Yeah. But that is where the magic is. And the magic, unfortunately, is just not playing the song twenty five hundred times. It just can't be. Nope. It can't be. It can't. Um, and that's okay. That's total, and it's valid for you to play it. I love it. But like, people aren't thinking of you playing this. They're thinking of their history with like a Rolling Stone, the oh, song. When they hear you do it, which is the point. You are a performer and you have left an indelible mark. Bob Dylan, keep doing what you're doing, man. If you were thinking about stopping, <laughs> these are words of wisdom to you. Keep going. Just keep going. Uh, the the best song on this record, Copper Kettle. The best song. You think so? Fucking love it. It's oh. one of the most beautiful. The little, just that beginning, like that little quiet. Get you a copper kettle. Get you a copper coil Fill it with blue-made corn mash And nevermore you'll toil You'll just lay there by the juniper I don't on on any of these tracks just because like that wasn't the moment for me because I know we would get most of these and talk about it more effusively so I didn't want to delve too deep unless something really caught my ear okay I thought the song was really romantic yeah. and really beautiful and it was really like, nice I, I enjoyed this song mm-hmm. and then I realized he's talking about making fucking whiskey yeah. and it 
took me out of it completely and it turned into a comic bullshit song and I could not take it seriously no, after that. Oh, there's no, nothing comic about it. There wasn't until I realized he's talking about get you a copper kettle to make your fucking... When he when I keyed it into him saying the words corn mash, I was yeah. like, I'm out. Oh my I'm God. Out. Why? You like whiskey? Know, What's the problem with whiskey? I'm out. I don't like whiskey. Okay. So you're just... But you're, you're no thank you to... Whi- I, this song's about no, whiskey. Just, I don't like, want to hear just, about like, it. Took, like, Whiskey's romantic. Whiskey gets people music. drunk. How many kids have been made on whiskey? That is true. However, you take the whiskey, you have the kid. It really just sucked out all oh. of the like romantic energy. But I but then it makes sense. What the fuck is a copper kettle about? Are you giving like the? I love you so much. Here's a copper kettle. I don't no, know, the man. copper kettle is to make the whiskey. No, know. it's subtle. I love that. Um, yeah, they reference the 1791 whiskey tax. I mean, There's never a whiskey, paid no tax. Never, the, never paid no whiskey tax. Since so. 1791, yeah. yeah. And the Whiskey Rebellion in 1792, which was quashed by the U.S. government. So it was the first first rebellion at post-Revolutionary uh, uh, War. I'll just say we'll talk about it when we get it because oh, it really like, fucking ruined it for me. Literally cannot wait. Um, absolutely love it. Uh, Gotta Travel On. Um, Paul Clayton is a uh, – we, we saw him uh, in No Direction Home, the um, – the movie, the movie, no direction home. Uh, Bob Dylan accused Paul Clayton of stealing some of his, which is rich, stealing some of his, um, like, like guitar, pa- licks. guitar licks and stuff like that. Um, and patterns and style, mm-hmm. whatever com- composition, whatever. Um, which again is rich, but, um, Bob Dylan covered this. This is a Paul Clayton song. Uh, I covered Gotta Travel On, which is pretty just standard. Like, I uh, liked it. I think tra- this was a really travel. successful use of the backup singers. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. They are on this one, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, this was come just get made it along, on my. Come get along. I don't know. Like, at the end of it, I just kind of went through and, and marked my favorite versus, like, most favorite, least favorite songs. Yeah. Uh, so this one, Copper Kettle got a least favorite. Oh, man. And then right on to a most favorite. So. Wow, we just see this talk. I love it. I love it. Completely different. So Blue Moon, obviously, we know that Babe is the best version of Blue Moon. Yes, please go watch the, what, 1994 oh my God. movie? <laughs> if you haven't seen it, don't worry about it. I uh, had to do a Donnarama community style, um, for a book report one year. Like, must have been in fourth grade or something. And uh, I don't read. I didn't read even then. Well, I mean, I used to read when I was a kid. I like made it all the way to the fourth Harry Potter. Okay, that's a brag, but just saying. <laughs> so I thought I was gonna be real smart because I didn't. I didn't want to read a book for this book report. But I was like, oh shit, there is a book version of the movie Babe. So I just watched Babe and then made a diorama of the movie Babe. And I got a good grade. So, I'm just saying. So you proved. There were, there were Legos involved. There was clay involved. There were toy pigs involved. And you, it was a great fucking day. And toy sheep. Yeah. You got an A probably for your creativity. Maybe. The teacher was probably like, this bitch has seen Babe. <laughs> She's never read And I have seen Babe because I have a fucking heart. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> and you could just do your rendition and then people would love it. That's right. Or be terrified. Yes. Uh, Blue Moon. Yeah. Classic song. Uh, Richard Rogers, Lawrence Hart, 1934. Uh, this was a, a hit for tons of people. Um, oh, yeah. Billie Holiday, Elvis, uh, the Marcells in 1961 made it a number one song, uh, which the others did not do. Oh, 
Frank Ocean just did. A, yes, he did a, a cover like, of was Moon it River. No, no, it was Moon River. And that was fucking gorgeous. God yeah. damn you, Frank Ocean. He can't do anything wrong. No. You just you get a nice, you get the mood. He's got the mood right. It doesn't matter. The you can dude, do anything. He's the king of ambiance. You can do anything yeah. in, on a good mood. Um, no, Blue Moon, I don't I don't care for this song. No, I don't this, care the, for it in general. He should not have done this. Whoa. It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. But would you say that he's okay to do it now on triplicate? I would. I would more enjoy it, and I also think that he would have a better sound sensibility. It's like not only is this an old person song, then is what we're saying. His elderliness. No, because again, I would immediately point just to what I just said with Frank Ocean. Um, Moon River's a fucking ancient song, and like true, true, okay. So somebody today could do Blue Moon. I mean, because now it's been. over 50 years. I think he could date. Like, I think Bob Dylan today could do it way better. Could do it. He could do that on triplicate, and I think he would have done a great job because I don't know. Like, he's been doing music for 30 years longer than we've been alive. Yeah. So the dude has a sense of arrangement and a style that he wants to achieve. And I think that he would, and as I, if he's going to croon, I want him to croon like he's crawling out of the grave. Yeah. And you got to live longer to do that, which he did, thankfully. Uh, the Boxer. So this is also a, a contemporary song. So The Boxer is Simon and Garfunkel. Okay. Um, oh, is it really? Yeah, okay. Off of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Who is who is duetting with him on this? Is it just him twice? I, it, as far as I know, it's just uh, there might be other. I don't know. Okay. That's that's tough. I don't know. This song, I was like losing my shit because I was like, this is beautiful and I like it. Yeah, this it's, is a great, it's track. a great version. But I was like, who the fuck is duetting with him? Because he's got a unique voice, be it Muppet or be it regular style Bob. The guy's voice is unique, so it's yeah. like Trent Reznor couldn't fucking do out with somebody. You know what I mean? Bob Dylan, I feel like he does okay with George Harrison. He, like he definitely like his voice will fit into a gang vocal. I'm not taking that away from him, but it stands out of a gang vocal. Whomever no was duetting yeah. with him was like the same person. I was like, did this motherfucker dub in his? Vo-? I mean, that's not he's not the first person to do it, no, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with that. I was like, but I couldn't hear it. I was losing my shit. So gonna, I think it was him twice. We're gonna leave that mystery for oh, the my episode. God. Anyway, but what I put was I was like. Is this a Peter Paul Mary slash Simon and Garfunkel mm-hmm. song? Because that's exactly what it sounds like. Absolutely. Ah, yeah, I'm so smart. Yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, Paul Simon wrote it, obviously, because <sighs> he wrote all of it. Uh, Rolling Stone put this at their number 106 of their 500 greatest songs of all time, The Boxer, which I think is really generous. Simon and Garfunkel. The Simon and Garfunkel. Well, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and, uh, Paul Simon's covered his own song a thousand times. No, this is not Bridge Over Troubled Water. So this is their first single after Mrs. Robinson. Miss Robinson. Okay. Uh, for, people thought of this song as uh, this is from the Wikipedia. Again, I just looked it up because you know I know the song, but I'm not like a Simon and Garfunkel head by any means. Uh, from the wiki, it said that um, that the song was seen as a quote sustained attack on Bob Dylan. Under this interpret again, it's from Wikipedia. Under this interpretation, Dylan is identified by his experience as an amateur boxer, and the lie la lie. Chorus represents allegations of Dylan lying about his musical intentions. Biographer Mark Elliott, who wrote Paul Simon in Life, said, quote, In hindsight, this seems utterly nonsensical. Yeah. <laughs> so they're trying to say that Simon... <laughs> wrote a song about Bob Dylan. Should, like, lie, lie, and then, lie. And then Bob was like, this is great. I'm going to show you motherfuckers by covering that song that you wrote about me to talk shit. So this is like 1960s rap battling. It is, but it <laughs> makes no sense and that's not what happened. 
<laughs> like literally that paragraph could be probably deleted from Wikipedia and no one would ever know or care. Or In fact, Paul the world Simon would be better. Simon is secretly a more spiteful bitch than we ever knew. The weirdest moment in the boxer's career, though, the, the life of the boxer, the song, was that on June 3rd, 2016, Paul Simon, just imagine being there. You're outside, you're enjoying the day, and you're listening to Paul Simon. He is um, He's partway between the boxer. And remember, this is 2016. We all have our phones. We get news alerts. We don't need artists from the stage to tell us stuff, right? Because, oh, like he's performing it. Like okay, he's like, on what? breaking news coming through sure, the sure. telegraph wire. Um, but no, he, he interrupts his singing of the boxer um, to say, quote, I'm sorry to have to tell you in this way, but Muhammad Ali has passed away. And then he continues playing because he was a boxer, well, continues yes. to play the boxer. Bizarre. And then, uh, yeah, then he finished the song with a last verse modified because he clearly wasn't thinking about this beforehand. Right. Oh, like sure. um, it's in the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade. I don't know what that means. Um, yeah. So he like changed the lyrics at the end uh, to suit Muhammad Ali's passing. Now, I if that happened in 1960 something. Sure. That makes Breaking more sense. News. Like Robert Kennedy told a crowd um, he was doing a campaign speech in 1968 when Martin Luther King Jr. got shot. Mm-hmm. And he was breaking down in tears, like having to tell the people. He, I think he was like in Mississippi telling people that he was dead and everyone was freaking out. Like hearing that kind of stuff, it's chilling. It's sad, especially because he was going to get gunned down a couple of you know months right. later. But this is like weird. This is like yeah. this dude died a couple like hours ago. Everyone got the alert. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, shit. Muhammad but I'm at this dead. concert. So I'm, but gonna... I'm at this concert. And then he's like breaking news. Sorry. <laughs> I just find it like <laughs> really. La, 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 la. And then Muhammad Ali is dead. And everyone's like, yeah, I mean, it sucks. It sucks. But we know. Let's move on. La, 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 la. Anyways, moving on. Take me as you am and take a message to Mary. Putting both of those two together, they are both written by um, Felice and Budlow Bryant, uh, who I know from uh, Ken Burns' country music. Uh, he wrote hits for Little Jimmy Dickens. That's right, the Everly Brothers. He also wrote, they, or they wrote Raining in My Heart, which was Buddy Holly's last single, mm. posthumously released, um, which is kind of like a perfect single after he's dead. Raining in My Heart, like that's so sad. It's a beautiful song. And he, they also wrote Love Hurts, Grand Parsons Love oh, Hurts. Yep. Love so among. Um, Tons of others. Their story is crazy. They like went to Nashville, poor in the back of a van. They like packed their kid up from California and like drove to Nashville just because like the uh, Felice Felice wrote like poetry. Like she would just do like um, uh, sort of like romantic poetry. And then he just had this sensibility for like taking those lines and stuff and putting them into songs. So the two of them just like from the back of a van just started like getting songs out there. And then they ended up, you know, being just a... I mean, Love Hurts and shit like that, like really big songs, uh, which is kind of crazy. So both of these are by them. I just, Patsy Klein songs. Is, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, sense. And they wrote for her too. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, no, they're they're great. I think Take a Message to Mary I like better um, because it oh, talks about great. wagon wheels and stuff. Oh, it's really? Yeah. I just like it because it's in the Seven Curses Extended Universe. You can put it there. If we just gave Bob and a guitar and a harmonica maybe but like there's too much but it's talking about too much wag- faff around it we can't have but we're talking about wagons all though. this around seven curses we can't we have to fucking up the canon what are we talking so you're but you wouldn't put take me as I am in there you would put none of these in two no just on the front of oh, a frontier oh my god these are the words of a frontier I know, land but them, them announcing these 
Oh my fucking God, the soft lady intro. What the fuck? Direct quote from Kelly Bond. Thank you. Get out of here, Muppet fucker. You cannot have Nashville skyline nonsense in the Seven Curses universe. That's not fair. What do you mean it's Kingsport not fair? Town. Kingsport Town. What about it? Is in Tennessee. Sure. Nashville. Geography. You, you're <laughs> seven curses. Extended universe can go all over the place. This talks okay. about wagons. I think that we have a different idea of the seven curses universe. I just want it to be lo-fi. Uh, no, people have wagons. L- listen, people have wagons. You know what in they this don't universe. have electricity. You know what's going on here? Lots of electricity. What's okay? that? Why? Because with this fucking ridiculous overdub soft lady intro and all this like oh, oh we can't guitars. have an electric guitars wow we can't even have electric guitars I'm keeping it period accurate okay uh, I don't appreciate your deviance I just like wagons but I guess there was a <laughs> wagon in like <laughs> Senor had wagons too but Senor's not a part of it although it could be Senor's well, a good song I I mean there's definitely an electric guitar oh yeah hundred percent anyways uh, those two are are are. Felice and Bud- Budlow Bryant originals. I don't care for either of them. I didn't definitely didn't think this conversation would come to a head over these bullshit songs. I didn't think I'd hear Muppet Fucker <laughs> <laughs> today. <laughs> Not today of all days. Not today. Uh, all right, coming to the close here. It Hurts Me Too. Uh, it was originally recorded by Tampa Red. Uh, and then he recorded himself again in 1940. So he had a hit multiple times with the same song. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's impressive. Yeah, and then this song was inducted into the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame as a classic blues recording. The foundation said, quote, Tampa Red proved himself a master of many moods during his long career. And with the classic line in the song, uh, when things go wrong, go wrong with you, it hurts me too. He showed how blues can be an expression of empathy and tenderness. Hmm. And it's a beautiful song. Oh, um, I, I like this one. It's kind yeah. of my, my favorites list. This is oh. just a couple of guitars and some blues in Forward, yeah, good. you can kind of tell like that connects to like living the blues. Like you can tell what was recorded on what days, yeah. and the song could the album could almost progress as like we end one day, we start the next day. We end one day, we start the next day. Like if you put all of his all of it together chronologically, it might even make some more sense. But the fact that you're throwing in Muppet voice with you know, blues voice with the with the girl singing like we're about to get in a fight because you skipped over Rigwam. No, no, finally. Okay, yeah, the, the very last one. Is it on the last one? Oh, I didn't even. Look. Yeah, yeah, hurts me too. And then we're not. We already talked okay, about good. minstrel Sorry. and stuff. And then finally, uh, because it's not on our list, we're talking Wigwam. Wigwam, la 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 la. la. This uh, was my second favorite song behind All the Wild Horses. So I'm like really heartbroken to discover that we won't be talking probably about either of those songs. I'm, I'm honestly, uh, this is a sh- one of the shocking moments of Bob Dylan like fandom is that this song is enormous and people really? know it really beyond like it. absolutely. And it's uh, kind of like, I think it's gutting for me because it's like he's literally saying la la la. And this is one of his more famous songs. 
I don't want to like explain stuff to you yes. real quick, but like you know, uh, people singing is not just words. Sometimes it's like another instrument to be added to the musical uh, soundscape. So. And, you, and this is good that you like this is like. I mean, I think <laughs> yeah, there, there's no lyrics to stand upon. That's for sure. Yeah, but I do think that he's in key like he's singing he's singing proficiently which sometimes he like purposely just does whatever the fuck he wants to sure so he's like make intentionally following what would be the melody of the song like he could obviously he, he could easily be replaced with an, an instrument yeah. because it's not adding anything lyrically at all it's just adding another tone another sound uh but i don't know man it, it's it sounds so good and, and he gets in like he does like spanishy flavors on some of his stuff and this one really encapsulates that really well. I love the horns. It well, feels okay, vibrant. So like it feels in the moment. It I could, will say. Are these overdubbed? Because this feels like an actual moment. So you can thank Bob Johnston for making it feel like a moment no, that actually happened. Not. Of course it's not. No, so, no, I don't like it. Just not. imagine Bob sitting there strumming a guitar going la 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 la. Shit! So this was put to tape on March 4th, 1970 in New York City. So not Nashville. He's just back in, in the studio. Um, he thought so much of this song that he, he labeled it uh, New Song One on the recording sheet. The musicians were Dylan, obviously, uh, David Bromberg on guitar, and Al Cooper on piano. So it is just, imagine it stripped away. March 17th, 1970, uh, in Nashville, they did instrumental overdubs. Uh, Dylan was not present for the overdubs, and Bob Johnston oversaw the project. It was a hit for Bob Dylan. It was uh, top 10 in Belgium, in Denmark, in France, in Malaysia, in the Netherlands, Singapore, Switzerland, top 40 in Canada, Germany, number 41 in the U.S. <laughs> we don't care about it. You know what? I don't care that I'm as basic as everybody else at the time. I don't care. I don't care. I like that it really uh, it has a great sound. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. No, it's really good. It's just like I, I'm just surprised that it was that an instrumental Without the la la la, an instrumental sure. was such a hit. Top ten. It's, I mean, just because it's Bob Dylan, I think really on good. some level. Yeah, it is good. I mean, Bob Johnson did a great job. It was on the Royal Tenenbaum soundtrack too. No so shit. I think it's had another life uh, outside. Oh, of probably. That. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's a. It is a bizarre. It is bizarre. I am really, truly crestfallen that this is not a live thing because mm. it sounds like, and that's what mm-hmm. like was really. Uh, endearing about the whole thing is that it's like it does sound like they're rehearsing before they're about to go on stage. In what uh, world does he have a whole fucking like brass section with? So him this when he's about one, to go on so stage? this song almost comes all the way around where it's like the rehearsalness maybe hurts some of these other songs because clearly they're just rehearsing. But then this one's so much fun because it's like it's, listen it's, to this sound that they're rehearsing. Yeah, think of what it could be on right. Stage yeah, or it's all that potential. Like, gosh, I didn't even think about Especially that the dynamic end, yeah. of it where it's like yeah, this is. Could you imagine a world where Bob Dylan's like, here's my fucking brass fan we're about to go. And then Bob Johnson would be like, they don't exist. Uh, and none of this is so real. Gutting. It's like music today, though. It's like, uh, oh, I can't wait to, to play it live. It's oh, like, sure. oh, I don't even know who played all this. <laughs> oh, it's just a computer it was that a did computer. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wild. I mean, that hasn't stopped a lot of people, but. No, no. And so it's, <laughs> uh, you know. Included. That's the thing. You didn't know. <laughs> you, it, but I, the beauty of music is that it kind of doesn't matter, right? Yeah. It's like, it sounds good. It sounds good. So does this album work in 2020, officially 50 years from its inception? Inception. I don't know, man. I do not know. No, actually. As an album, this will fails 
as it did then and today. Do we keep it's a, it's definitely something that people continue to search out, continue to listen to because it might not be the worst in a Kevin Federline sense, but it's definitely one of those albums that's like Well, now the infamy attached to it, right? The infamy yeah. of this alone is so yeah. uh, what is this shit is so iconic. It's like that stuff was never written about anybody else, you know. I don't know. You can't really get beyond that. I think, even though Grau Marcus has come around to do the the liner notes for the the that's really serious. Cool. It's like, and he's written about Bob Dylan extensively. Are they you know, buds? I think they're. I think they know yeah. each other. For I, I would be shocked if they've never met one another. I mean, yeah. to like be a living biographer of somebody. And there's, like, t- I mean, but Bob's got a lot of biographers. Well, I think sure. Clinton Highland, uh, Clinton Halen would say, I don't. I think he said he has never met Bob. Hmm. And even the, he's written book after book after book. But has he written liner notes for his album too? Uh, he did liner notes for the the live in '66, the '36 concerts, the full every single show from '66. So yeah, they pass it around. But anyways, yeah, does it does it work? I think I think infamously it will work, and I think it's off putting enough that it's a one listen put away type of thing. You're you're either gonna you might get attached to some songs like. You know, for me, I I had no opinion about Copper Kettle until listening to it this time, and I'm like, I for whatever reason, it strikes enjoy me. It. I really enjoy it. Um, all the you know, Tired Horses was always kind of like I just knew it was silly and dumb. And Days of Forty Nine we listened to, but I wouldn't have known really listened to that until we did episode ten. Uh, you know, so a project like ours, these songs are gonna resonate more with me going forward. But right. we also listen to it more than I think. The recommended dose, for sure. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I mean, I'll, I will certainly be taking all the tired, tired horses and wigwam and storing them away. That's good. But as far as the rest of the album, pass. And yeah. we'll, we'll listen to them again. Yeah. So I don't have to, like, devote that mental energy. But now that I know that wigwam and all the tiled ho- tired horses... Why can't I say tired? Tiled horses. All What's a tiled horse? Now that I know that all the tired horses won't be... Or probably won't be yeah. coming up again. I'm gonna gonna have secreted away. So or maybe I'll throw it on there. Who knows? I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it again at some point. I'm sure it'll cross over into another song at the very least. Uh, Descent magazine in 2014 they did a, a review about Bob Dylan at this uh, right after the bootleg series came out, um, and they were looking at it in terms of Bob Dylan getting away, like moving away from the incessant concentration upon him, uh, and sort of like talking about the attention economy and this is something that i think resonates more in 2020 than it did in 2014 even because now we're like inundated constantly by the internet exactly so they said to test the patience of all of us quote bob dylan he decided to become an oversharer instead of curating his life and putting out the best bits or iconically passing on great songs because they didn't fit whatever the thing was right so they they went into a fucking vault for 30 years uh, because it did you know that that photo that pose whatever you were doing wasn't what was was right he just decided fuck it i'm just going to show the nitty-gritty i'm going to show um all the the weird choices that i've made i'm going to put not not just one version of a song but i'm going to put multiples of multiples on an album and just put it all and put live songs from the concert you guys didn't go to because you wanted me to go to Woodstock. He just shared every single aspect of his life. And I, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. For the defense of, again, All the Tired Horses, when I was listening to it, I thought it was All the Tired Horses. I don't know why, as if I didn't hear that line, even though it's repeated <laughs> 600 times. How am I supposed to get any writing? R-W-I, sorry, W-R-I-T-I-N-G, right. writing done? 
Um, so I will say, all the weird choices in the, in the sun. sun. How am I supposed to get any writing done? Beautiful. And that's it. That's the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> My comrades, they all love me well. Jolly, saucy crew. A few hard cases I will recall, though they all were brave and true. Whatever the pinch, they never would flinch. They never would fret or whine. Like good old bricks, they stood the kicks in the days of 49. All right, Kelly, that was self-portrait. We have taken our self-portrait, and you are going to take your self-portrait right now. You were a person in the world. If you were going to draw a self-portrait of yourself with only the things you're, the words you're about to say. You know those like so, you know, those drawings that people do where they're like, they write the word New York or whatever, like over and over and over again, and then they make yeah, New like York a, a, a New York skyline or whatever. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. So with your words, you're going to say enough words that somebody out there can make a self-portrait of you with the words you're about to say from this moment forward with the things that you recommend people do for the next week ahead. Go. Terminator Dark Fate. Go watch Terminator Dark Fate. It is very good. The end. Uh, so basically they did this awesome thing where they completely reneged all of the sequels after Terminator 2, which is great because I haven't watched them, but I'm assuming they're all garbage and not worth watching. But they were like, hey, you know how Terminator was really cool? Terminator 2, not the first one so much, but Terminator 2 was really cool. What if we made it so that the female characters in the movie actually had agency and were relevant other than just being a host body to birth John Connor? Boom! Terminator Dark Fate. Not only are there fewer white people, the lead is uh, Danny Ramos is the character's name and the actress is... Natalia Reyes, great. Lots of Latino, Latinx uh, actors all over the place. They blow up a fucking uh, ice camp thing. It's amazing. And Mackenzie Davis, who played Yorkie in that episode of Black Mirror, San Junipero, the very, very, very important episode of Black Mirror, is the yeah. like one of the main good guys in this too. It's great. It's like Mackenzie Davis being super gay and saving the world with, uh, I keep forgetting her name, Natalia Reyes. And it's fantastic. Yeah. Also, Arnold Schwarzenegger is there and, and so is... Uh, Linda Hamilton. You have to have them. Yeah, you do. But they're all old, and it's a whole thing, and I won't spoil it and go on forever. But it's if you like action movies and you like and you want John Connor to get his comeuppance after all this time. <laughs> yes. After all this time, you're like, why have we invested 25 years of our culture in John Connor? One of my favorite things that's ever bullshit. happened, and it happens in the very be- the first scene of the movie. Woo. Fantastic. Uh, go watch that. So yeah, if you if you mm. like movies where they throw hummers at people and they're like crashing planes into each other and jumping from heights that should kill literally everyone uh but but they don't die i don't go watch that movie oh, because watch it anyway. it's it's if you like that or don't like that watch this movie yes absolutely Done. that's what this is about watch it no matter what your opinion doesn't matter also teebs he's a producer and songwriter from la he's part of the like flying lotus record label i can't remember what that's called but his his actual name is matendre madawa yeah uh, anyway, he's got six albums and they're all fucking great. The most recent one came out last year is called Anika. And I love his shit. I can't stop listening to it. It's like one of all six of his albums, like back to front. I don't skip any of it. It's just right up my alley. Like electronic music. Go listen to Teeps. T-E-E-B-S. Teeps. I'm done. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's <laughs> a lot of words. Somebody could make a good self-portrait out of all of those words. I think so. 
So if you're listening, you know who you are. Get on it. Yeah. As for me, I would recommend because we listened and we talked a lot about uh, self-portrait this week. A lot of self-portrait is a lot of uh, old country songs. We talked about that uh, when we went over all of the songs. Well, I just finished uh, Ken Burns' country music, and I recommend it. Isn't it really long? It's uh, 16 hours long total, so eight episodes, two hours long a piece. It's exactly what you would expect. Peter Coyote is narrating, which, God, just ugh. just do spoken word stuff. Just like, good night. See you tomorrow morning. I would listen to that before I went to bed. I'd be like, good night, Peter. Um <laughs> He hasn't done that so far. Uh, But yeah, no, it's excellent. Um, It's a great primer. Uh, I went online and people were writing reviews that are like, if you're a hardcore country music fan, you're probably not going to love it because it treads old water. You know all these people. You know all of these songs. But for me, I I didn't know anything. A lot of these people were just, who is Jimmy Rogers? Who is Roy Acuff? Who are the Carter family? It's like I kind of vaguely know, but it was really cool to have context. And obviously, uh, Ken Burns stuff is always tight because it's, fucking the the use of archival footage the use of archival photographs and just with the internet i I was thinking about jazz a lot with this because last year this is not going to be like last year where i become a country boy um like i was a jazz boy last year um although it it has definitely opened my mind to a lot of this stuff but um jazz before you know that was from the 90s so it, it it was instantly dated it didn't do what country music the, the series does now, which is basically breaking it down into years and ending in 1996, basically conceding that there are country music still happening, but I'm not going to comment on anything within the last 25 years. Let time keep playing out. We'll see what happens. And I like that approach because people were mad about jazz ending in 1969. It's like jazz didn't stop. People kept doing stuff. So if jazz, if they did jazz today, it, what I'm saying, if they did jazz today, they would do it a lot like country music. They would have broken it down by eras which they do but they would have probably put the years on there just so people understood that this is not the jazz completely but jazz up to a certain point so i kind of like that because it wasn't like we're trying to make a point about today we're not going to super present which is instantly dating you no matter what because like a new record will constantly be released but they do have a cool montage at the end where they sort of throw in a bunch of faces taylor swift and like sort of what country and it was cool to see like taylor swift mixed with like patsy klein and dolly parton and like just all of this music just being pushed forward and you see hip hop artists and it's just that music is still around and you know, they, they do a great job of talking about its influence across everything, including hip hop, you know, like Southern hip hop was hugely influenced by old country music as well. And old rhythm and blues and all, all of that stuff melded together. And then so you kind of create about Lil Nas X. They didn't, which is probably, but he was there. He was in the montage. Oh really? That's oh yeah, absolutely. Nice. But he was, um, he might've even soundtracked the, the montage at the end, but um, but no, and wisely, no, um, I would say. So yeah, if you're if you're curious and you're curious how quickly they mentioned Bob Dylan, it's an episode one. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, it was like I didn't know what the Grand Ole Opry really was. You know, uh, a lot of this stuff does focus on Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash was kind of our our, our big person who kind of went through the whole uh, generation from the you know 30s to when he died. A uh, hurt. They did a montage for hurt, and like, oh, I forgot how good that song is. Uh, but anyways, it's really great. And I highly recommend it just as like a fun, a fun documentary. Honestly, it's just a really good documentary if you're interested in anything. And really Dolly Parton is another one. I just didn't know that much about her. And she's a huge figure in this and she's wonderful. Yeah. Just straight up. And honestly, they're all really nice. They're all, I love it because they just sit around and either on jazz or tooting their horns or they're just like, I'm just going to break out my mandolin real quick and just like fucking play you this crazy tune. I'm like, you guys are so talented. Musicians, man. 
Oh, they're good. Yeah, the music's cool. The music's pretty cool. <laughs> she walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds well. Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. Nobody knows but me. All right, Kelly, that was uh, self-portrait. Done. Never again. Never again. Until Nev- we get the songs that are on. Never again. Yes, yeah, so all the songs. So we'll be going back to Wigwam, back to Alberta, back to horse country. But and not back to Woogie Boogie. Don't, not back to Woogie Boogie and no time for our Jolly Saucy crew, although RIP. I love them so much. Uh, it was great to revisit it. Anyways, Kelly, this is a Bob Dylan podcast and we're continuing forward with Bob Dylan, our goals of Bob Dylan songs that we listen to. <laughs> Kelly, we are down to 398 songs next week. Next episode, what you got? Are you still, you're still random. Oh yeah, no, okay. the, the, you can tell with the speed and, and mm. uh, You don't have to think of a number. Oh, oh, okay. Of which I will be spouting numbers henceforth that you can be assured. I, this is not off the dome. This is random.org. Nice. Do you feel like you need to like preface it and be like, 101 brought to you by random.org? Oh, absolutely not. Until they okay. start paying us money. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to, you're going to take their work and claim it as your own mm-hmm. instantly. Okay. I mm-hmm. like it. I mean. It's just, it's just a number. They can't prove. <laughs> they they can't prove that they did They it. have not copywritten numbers. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. 122. 122. Thanks, random.org. Uh, 122. In a different world, after self-portrait, we want to come down from it. Um, where do we want to go? Where do we want to go? Do you want to go forward or backward in time? What's your feeling? Do you want to go back to the 60s? you want to go to the 1980s? What? Where would you like to go after self-portrait? After you're hanging out in 1970, where do you want to go? I want to go to whatever number 122 oh is, clearly. Gosh. I'm just, I just, I'm just curious. I'm just, I want to, I want to gauge your disappointment level. That's all. <laughs> okay. I'm just, I'm just asking questions. I want to go straight to Christian Bob. Go straight to Christian Bob. Okay, we're not going to Christian Bob. We are going backwards in time. We are going back to Nashville Skyline. Okay. Because uh, we that was our last album to get a song from, and now every song is Nashville Skyline. We've gotten like four of the ten in the last like I mean number of episodes. <laughs> My bad boys. Tell me that it isn't true. That, that's what it could have been, but it wasn't. So this is a lie because you were wrong again. Actually, random.org was wrong. Sorry, random.org. But you know who's not wrong in this case? Random.org. Who picked number <laughs> 365. <laughs> Kelly, we are going to an excellent song. Not on any record, but it could have been on Blonde on Blonde, on Blonde or Highway 61 Revisited. It is on the cutting edge. It's a great song called She's Your Lover Now. Hmm. That's not on an album? Not on an album, but should have been. Could have been. Fucking great song. So next week, we're going to be listening to The Cutting Edge. We're going to be listening to She's Your Lover Now, 1965, 1966. Um, We've definitely mentioned it before with, like, um, One of Us Must Know, Fourth Time Around, same sort of um, chaotic type of songwriting. So we're going back to the 1960s. So you wanted to go Christian Bob? We're going 20 years in the opposite direction. So, or no, we're only going a couple years in the opposite direction. Kelly, She's Your Lover Now, next week. Now tonight, Blues Joker. Now tonight, Blues Joker. 
Chasing after us, hey, chasing after us. 